former President Trump's chilling new threat amid mounting legal challenges. The twice impeached former president's rhetoric, it's dangerous. And if he keeps it up, he's going to get someone killed. Democratic outrage after former President Donald Trump issued an ominous warning in response to a possible historic indictment. If they can do it to a president, they can do it to anybody, and they are. House Republicans rush to defend him as new developments emerge in multiple criminal probes into the former president. Plus, I don't know how to spell the sanctimonious. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you also call me a winner. One of Trump's likely rivals for the GOP presidential nomination takes aim at him for the first time. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. I'm Laura Barone-Lopez. Former President Donald Trump's legal troubles escalated this week with significant developments in two of the four criminal cases against him. On Friday morning, Trump threatened, quote, potential death and destruction if he's indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney. That office is investigating Trump's alleged hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. It was his most explicit call to violence yet, as possible criminal charges loom, and it sparked swift criticism from Democrats. We've already seen the consequences of incitement from the former president. He is principally responsible for inciting the violent insurrection that happened on January 6th, but clearly he has not learned his lesson. At least one top Republican, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, said, quote, there's no place in America for political violence of any kind. This comes as a federal judge pierced attorney-client privilege between Trump and his defense attorney, Evan Corcoran, in a separate investigation into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Today, Corcoran testified in front of the grand jury. He was also ordered to turn over his notes and transcripts of audio recordings. In addition to these probes, Trump is being investigated by the Justice Department and Fulton County, Georgia, for his efforts to subvert the 2020 election. If he's indicted in any of these cases, it would be the first for a former president. Joining me to discuss this and more, Devlin Barrett, a reporter at The Washington Post. And joining me here in the studio, Heather Cagle, managing editor of Punchbowl News. Eugene Daniels, White House correspondent and co-author of Politico's Playbook and Hans Nichols, a political reporter at Axios. Thanks to you all for being here. Devlin, I, I want to start with you, because one of the most significant developments was in the classified documents case that the special counsel is investigating. Uh, essentially, what happened was the judge totally blasted through attorney-client privilege. What does that mean? So it means that one of the people closest to Donald Trump and one of the people who knows the most about uh, the, the events that followed a government subpoena demanding the return of classified documents had to walk into the grand jury today and provide testimony. Um, now, we don't know what the answers were. We don't know how contentious those, those question and answer sessions were. Um, certainly, this is something that Trump tried to avoid. This is something that his lawyers tried to avoid, but they lost at the appeals court level. And so uh, Trump's lawyer was called in, into, into the grand jury to testify. And that, that is a big step. And it's really, it, it's another example of how the, the documents, the classified documents investigation is really entering a kind of crunch time. 
And Devlin, that and Devlin. same judge, Beryl Howell, uh, also rejected executive privilege came, claims in the investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and ordered Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to the former president, as well as other aides to testify. What's the significance there? So I think, again, the significance is that they're forcing people in, in Trump's inner circle to come into the grand jury. Now, I, I think sometimes people hear that close aides to the president have to testify, and they think, oh, these, this will be evidence against the person. I, I don't think we can assume that. Remember, a lot of these witnesses are essentially Trump, people who support Trump and people who have argued publicly that they don't think Trump did anything criminal here. So it's not necessarily that they are gathering evidence in incriminating the, the former president, although that's certainly possible. Part of what may be going on here is gathering a better understanding for prosecutors of what any Trump defense might be. And that has been an important objective for prosecutors looking at the conduct around all these events. So, so Eugene, Eugene, President, uh, former President Trump has not really talked about this week the cases that Devlin was just talking about, but he has been very explicit online, uh, issuing threats in regards to the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation. He posted a photo of himself uh, holding a baseball bat alongside the District Attorney Alvin Bragg. He posted online the threats of death and destruction. This also comes as Trump is about to go to Waco, Texas, for one of his first big rallies in 2024. And Waco is uh, a really big uh, place for the far-right extremist movement due to what happened in 1993 in the anti-government movement. What is the message that the former president is sending here? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we saw this on the debate stage with Joe Biden when he said, stand back and stand by. He does like a wink and nod a lot of times to, to folks. Because if you talk to him and the people around him, they'll say he didn't explicitly call for violence, but the other people that are watching, that's the concern experts will tell you, that they are taking cues from the president. When he talks about if you're not careful here, it's going to be death and destruction. That is telling some of these folks, some of these right-wing groups, that, oh, he wants us to do these things. Whether or not Donald Trump says it explicitly, that is what they've seen. We saw that on January 6th, and we've seen that over the years, and I think that's something that the experts are so worried about. People I was talking to about Waco, um, for tomorrow, his, his rally tomorrow, they're very concerned about the security there, what's going to happen. And also, as these cases start coming down, if he is indicted in any, any of these cases, what that looks like around the country because of these calls for, these seeming calls for violence. And Hans, as uh, Trump is attacking District Attorney Alvin Bragg, mm -hmm. who actually recently received death threats this week, yeah. uh, Republicans in the House are vowing to investigate yeah. Alvin Bragg. They are, where is this attempt to investigate the investigators going to go? Well, you saw Republicans on the Senate side come out and say, well, not so fast. This isn't a great idea, which seemed to be like sort of the first sign that this may not happen. The other sign is just sort of the back and forth of separation of powers. This is a local prosecutor. They, the Congress can try to subpoena them. They can try, he can, they can try to force him and compel testimony. But to do that, you know what you need? You need the Justice Department. And the Justice Department is controlled by Joe Biden. It's a Democratic Justice Department. It's really hard to see how you actually have hearings on Capitol Hill with a local prosecutor justifying an ongoing investigation of the decisions he or she may have made, which puts us into sort of a familiar territory in, in Trump, the Trump era, and that is a lot of things are performative. 
So the president comes out and says this. A lot of lawmakers make their saying, well, we're going to investigate, but do they really have the power to really summon that guy, bring him to before them, and force them to answer questions? So I suspect ultimately will be decided like by the courts. And as we know, uh, there are other cases going on that are probably going to overtake this one. So you know, we're, we're back to sort of these three investigations that, uh, that Devlin's talking about. And I don't know which one's going to go first. I don't think any of us do. And, and so far, the district attorney's office has rejected those requests for documents from from Republicans. Pretty forcefully, I would yeah. say. The, the, <laughs> yeah. so the rejection they, is they, pretty forceful. I think we know where mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Bragg stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they call, uh, he called it unlawful. His office did. But <laughs> yeah. Heather, speaking of attempts to uh, attack Bragg and discredit this investigation into the hush money payments, there's also uh, among House Republicans again uh, an attempt to discredit investigations into the January 6th attack Mm -hmm. and Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Just today, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, as well as a dozen other House Republicans, went to the D.C. jail to visit with uh, accused January 6th defendants. There seems to be a pattern here. Yeah, and and this is interestingly, this goes back to Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the deal that he made with conservatives in early January after 15 ballots, right, to secure the speakership. And part of that was to shed some light in their eyes on what really happened on January 6th and things like that. Now you talk to Democrats on the Hill and, frankly, Senate Republicans, and they say that a lot of this is nonsense. January 6th was an insurrection. It was violent. Why are we trying to rewrite history in the House? And I think there's a lot of... Um, hurt feelings, even among Senate Republicans, and anger about this. But yes, it is part of a, a pattern. And Speaker McCarthy met with Ashley Babbitt's mom yesterday. We saw that. He also released those 41,000 hours of tapes of security footage to Tucker Carlson and not any other media outlet. There was a lot of criticism. Um, about that. And then we have Barry Loudermilk, who's a House member who's promising to investigate the January 6th committee and kind of say, here's what they didn't look into. Um, So I think a lot of this is just him, McCarthy, trying to make peace with the conservatives that gave him the speakership and keep them happy. The question is, none of this looks good for House Republicans, especially those that continue to downplay the violence of that day. And as we get more into the election cycle in 2024, when voters you know, returning to the ballots, will they keep hammering on this or will they turn to something else? And a significant amount of the Republican, of the GOP base and Trump supporters still mm-hmm. believe that January 6th was not as dangerous as it actually was and believe that the 2020 election was stolen. But Devlin, I want to come back to you because there are a number of indictments that the former president could be facing across these multiple cases that we laid out. Uh, what happens next in the two that we're specifically talking about right now, which is the the special counsel's investigation into classified documents, as well as the Manhattan DA's investigation into the hush money payments? Right. So let's start with Manhattan. In Manhattan, there were signals last week that they were, uh, according to people familiar with that grand jury, very close to voting on whether to indict or not. And then something seemed to change a little bit in the public understanding of what that what was going on, and that process seemed to slow down a little. Um, so next week is going to be a week of waiting to see if that grand jury actually moves forward or if there is some wrinkle uh, brought on by the, the, the last-minute sort of Hail Mary defense uh, strategy to, to give the grand jury additional information um, to try to change their minds or change their uh, momentum. In the in the classified documents case, 
what we're really seeing, I think, is if you if you look at the witnesses that they've come in, particularly Evan Corcoran, the lawyer who did the search originally at Mar-a-Lago for the documents that the FBI and the Justice Department decided was so problematic and so insufficient. I think that really the fact that that person was in the grand jury today really suggests that there is just a, a, a very tightening circle now of people that the government hasn't talked to. And they've done a great deal of evidence gathering so far. And now it's really, it, it seems to me like there aren't that many more people to talk to once you've talked to Evan Corcoran. So you think that that investigation could wrap up soon? I mean, wrap up is always a tough term in federal investigations. Most federal criminal investigations take years. So I, I don't want to overpromise anything or overspeculate mm -hmm. or overpredict. But I, w I will say, like, if you think about who the witnesses are, Evan Corcoran is the type of person who should be among the last to go in the grand jury. And that's how I think of this. Devlin, if there is an indictment, uh, what is the process after that? Well, if that happens, we will really be in uncharted territory, obviously for the historical reason that, that a former president hasn't been indicted before, but also for a very practical, a couple of very practical technical reasons that this is a person who has a Secret Service security detail that cannot leave him. And so I think it's, an, it's not a specific predictable thing as to exactly how they would process someone. But what normally happens when you're indicted, especially for a white collar crime, a financial crime, a nonviolent crime, uh, you're, you're generally allowed to self-surrender to the courthouse where you're processed, you're fingerprinted, you're photographed for a mugshot. And then you go and you appear in court and then you're released. Um, something like that would happen if Donald Trump is ultimately indicted for something. But you would have to do it with the sort of protective barrier of the Secret Service. And again, that's just something we've never seen before. Heather, we, the one thing we haven't talked about here is the way Democrats have been reacting to the specific legal developments. Mm -hmm. What's their response been so far? Well, I think until today they were mostly silent, actually. I mean, they did, you know, weigh in just a little bit. But today we saw um, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries come out, as you played at the beginning, and particularly respond to Trump's seeming threat overnight of, like, death and destruction or, or whatever he wrote. Um, but for the most part, they've kind of stayed on the sidelines. And this has been a pattern that we've seen, especially since Republicans came into the House majority. Part of that is you have a whole new leadership team on the Democratic side that's trying to find its footing. But part of that, I think, is they have realized that there are a lot of issues within the Republican Party. There are a lot of differences between Senate Republicans and House Republicans. There's a lot of debate over whether they should support former President Trump or not. And Democrats are kind of happy to step off to the sidelines and be in the minority and just let Speaker Kevin McCarthy deal with it on his own, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they don't want to add any fuel to the fire. And so that's really what we've seen. Mm -hmm. Well, as Devlin said, we're going to be laser focused on that Manhattan district attorney, uh, the developments there and the grand jury. But thanks, Devlin, for joining us and sharing your reporting. Thanks for having It's unclear how Trump's growing legal issues will impact his support among the Republican base. But after months of jabs, one of Trump's likely 2024 challengers, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, took aim at him for the first time. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. 
But DeSantis went on to say the Manhattan DA's office was, quote, pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. Hans, that was a very cautious uh, jab at Trump there from DeSantis. Yeah, I think the important thing is he's making the jabs, right? Up to this point, no one's really taken, I mean, Chris Christie, Mike Pence a little bit, but this is the first time DeSantis has really thrown a punch, not to do this all in boxing metaphors, during March <laughs> when it should only be basketball metaphors. But this, you, you saw you? him, you saw him take his shot. Uh, and, you know, he walked it back a little bit, but, you know, I'm not so sure the walking back or the sort of when he kind of says, well, you know, uh, it sanitizes a little bit. I don't know if that matters for Trump, right? That's that you kind of have an audience of one here. And the audience of one is Donald Trump to see to what extent he responds. And then it gets interesting. And I think we're just at the beginning of this. But I think what we learned from DeSantis this week is that he's in this fight and he's prepared to take a swing. And he's trying to have it both ways, essentially, there. Hit Trump, also defend him in the, the hush money payment case. But Heather DeSantis also backtracked on recent comments that he made about Ukraine. He had said that Russia's, that the Russia's invasion was a territorial dispute at first. Now he's calling it a, a real invasion and called a Russian president, President Putin, a war criminal. What's behind that change? I mean, I think if you look at the backlash that he received uh, from establishment Republicans, and he'll, DeSantis will claim that he doesn't want the support of the establishment, and sure, that helps him in a primary, but in reality, if you're going to be the general candidate, you do need the support of the establishment, right? But the backlash he received on Capitol Hill, especially from Senate Republicans who are mostly uh, united and aligned behind continuing to fund this war and support Ukraine, um, and also the donors. A lot of them, frankly, were just taken aback by this. I think a lot of folks realize um, Republicans, if you talk to them on the Hill, they see him as their establishment candidate. Now, Chip Roy is the only member of Congress who has endorsed him so far, and he's conservative and was a longtime Trump backer. But if you talk to Republicans, especially on the Senate side privately, they see him as kind of a Trump light, someone who can maybe bring this base along, if anyone can that's not Trump, but will also appeal to more establishment Republicans and the donor base that they're looking at. And so a lot of them, I think, just thought this was a very unnecessary error. Republicans think that DeSantis can bring the base along, in part because he is very much aligned with the former president on policy and message, Eugene. So. Are, but are we seeing that base actually move away from Trump and towards DeSantis or anyone else that's in or potentially going to get into the 2024 field? Short answer, no. We're not seeing <laughs> yeah. that, right? That's the thing that has been, I think, frustrating for a lot of Republicans whose names aren't Donald Trump for years, is that his base is with him. They have been with him from the very, very beginning. And it's hard to shake that. I mean, we went through January 6th, all types of things that he has said and done over the years, and they haven't moved. And I will say, you know, with, you know, DeSantis punching a little bit, or you have Pence doing the same thing, they have to, it has to be sustained. And more importantly, it has to be on a debate stage. It can't just be in a dark room where reporters can't record or not in an interview. It can't just be sitting down with Pierce Morgan. It needs to be in front of Donald Trump to see how he reacts to it as well, because voters have not seen that. It didn't happen in 2016. And when it did with Marco Rubio, for example, it didn't go over very well, right? And so that is something that when I talk to some of these strategists who want someone like Ron DeSantis to jump in and be that Trump light, that's what they want to see. But they also, the, one of the other reasons they like Donald 
um, Ron DeSantis isn't just because he's like tough with media reporters, it's because he's been able to use the um, levers of government in Florida to take on the cultural issues that they care about, right? And that is something I think that Republicans, especially conservatives, are looking to do on the federal level. And that's another reason why he's, one, he's, their, he's their man to, to beat, they think. And they also, they also like that he won. They like right. the margin. Right. That's a big, I mean, you know, he like, they like, and you saw DeSantis sort of wink at that when he says, I'm a winner, you know, and talk about putting points on the board. But that's like when you, the, the core of the DeSantis sort of, I don't want to say boomlet, or, but interest is that he won and he won big in a state that used to be tight. And, you know, donors look and notice mm -hmm. that. Right. Florida is very different, though, than a lot of the swing states across right. the country um, where Trump didn't uh, didn't win. But Republicans back in Washington are also working out an, another disagreement over increasing the debt ceiling, uh, which needs to be done to prevent a, a default, a fiscal cliff, which, as we all know, would cause catastrophic damage, send the economy potentially into a recession and the U.S. would default uh, on not be able to pay its obligations. But Heather Punchbowl was just reporting about this. As House Republicans are demanding that President Biden negotiate over spending cuts in order for an exchange on uh, increasing mm -hmm. the debt ceiling, they're also struggling amongst themselves to even figure out what spending cuts cuts they are trying to do. Uh, where is this all headed? Yeah, so right now, Democrats, including Biden, are saying, show us your plan. <laughs> put your budget out, right? We put ours out. You may not like it, but show us what you have. Because remember, House Republicans want to roll this back to fiscal 2022 levels, but they don't want to touch defense. They don't want to touch most entitlements. So where are these cuts going to come from? Well, the problem is they only have a five-seat majority in the House, and most of them do not agree on what these cuts are. So they have not put a budget it out yet. They keep saying that they'll probably put something out in April, maybe as late as May. But in the meantime, they want Biden to continue to negotiate with them. You look at Democrats and Democrats say, we have nothing to negotiate with. What are we supposed to do? So it's a very interesting position that they've put themselves in. And we actually reported this morning that Senate Republicans are getting a, a little bit nervous about this and saying, all right, the, you know, we're kind of getting close. We need to get you guys to the table and figure it out. Hans, do you think that there is any appetite among Republicans? I know Heather's essentially saying they still want those spending cuts, but yeah. any appetite for a clean debt ceiling increase? Oh, no. given I, I mean, there might be privately, but none, none that anyone can take and expect to still be Speaker of the House. Right. So, I mean, that's McCarthy's challenge and he's letting the House work its will. And I think, you know, Heather, you guys have done a good, did a great job. You guys too, Politico. Too, you. But you guys sort of on, on how he has kept his coalition together and how he's gotten the votes. And that's by listening. And so, you know, if you have a, if we are all going to be taking a bet right now on whether or not it's going to be April or May for the budget, take the over. Right. It's going to be May. There's a, there has to be a lot more conversations on just what's doable. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we might all be nervous about it. Wall Street might be nervous about it. There's, you know, some Senate Republicans that are nervous about it. The nervousness doesn't seem to have really seeped into the core of the House Republican Conference. And until that does, and no one knows what the event is going to be that makes them nervous. Is it going to be a massive market correction? Is it going to be a big sell-off? No one really knows yet. Until that happens, I think we're all kinds of sort of, you know, in the prelims on this and not really in the fight yet. And, and Eugene, the, the recent bank failures prompted some Republicans to argue that 
we should make spending cuts. This is a good reason to make spending cuts. What has the White House response been to that? Yeah, I talked to a White House aide today about this exact same issue, and they said what, especially what the SVP issue showed, is that, one, it has nothing to do with spending cuts. It was about regulation, right, that this, that these things don't have much to do with each other. And there's also some Republicans who are saying this proves that we shouldn't be moving the debt limit, that we shouldn't do that, and that's another thing, obviously, the White House surprise does not agree with, right? Um, they don't want these things coupled. I don't see them changing their mind on that. And they over and over, aides will tell you in the White House that Republicans have done this before and they eventually blink, right? They eventually kind of shake, the, the donors start panicking, um, the business community starts to panic, and then Republicans kind of get in line. The House Republicans, this set of House Republicans don't seem to have that same kind of fear of those of those groups of folks. Um, and so it's the Senate that I think we should be watching, right? Where's House Senate Republicans who are going to have to kind of take this over at some point is how a lot of folks in the White House feel because they don't see Kevin McCarthy, though he's listening a lot, they're worried that he's not going to be able to lead his people into doing something that could keep this country from, you know, economic cat catastrophe. And we have, you know, um, some income that's going to be coming into the government based on taxes here in April. That will kind of tell us exactly when that X date mm -hmm. is. Right now it's aug maybe August, it might be mm -hmm. September, we might yeah. be able to push it off. But it's very unclear and that is not good for no, anything. No, it's not good at all. And um, let's hope that uh, we don't reach economic catastrophe uh, at all, but we have to leave it there for now. And so thank you to my panel for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And thanks to all of you for joining us as well. Don't forget to watch PBS News Weekend on Saturday for a look at the barriers preventing people from receiving basic medical care and screenings. I'm Laura Barone-Lopez. Good night from Washington.